Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. We started this podcast to highlight the issues around representation of women in genre fiction. But women aren't the only ones who suffer at the hands of harmful tropes, poor characterization, and limiting traditional gender roles. So in today's episode, we're going to be discussing the menfolk. And while they may tend to get the majority of, you know, shall we say, screen time across all genre fiction mediums, they don't always have it easy. Predominantly, tropes around male characters promote ideas of masculinity that are impossible to live up to. So before we sort of get into the nitty gritty and go into examples and tearing this issue apart, let's start with just sort of correctly defining what toxic masculinity is, because there is, you know, some sort of, it gets confused a little bit, it gets thrown around when it's not really accurate sometimes. So I just want to, you know, make sure we have this clear. So for me, one of the definitions that I liked most uh, was from the Good Men Project. And it said that toxic masculinity is a rejection of the perceived opposite, femininity, that is so pervasive as to become unhealthy for both men and those around them. How about you two? Well, I didn't really find a particular definition that I looked at and went, ooh, but I I thought it was very good looking at the elements um, that were contained within toxic masculinity. And most importantly as well, the ones that was deemed masculine in a really positive sense and I thought in particular one of the things I noticed is that those elements that are positive and masculine can so easily be turned toxic just by a little twist so um the ones that were positive and masculine was um a strong devotion to work and friends which you obviously get in a lot of books and in in everyday life excelling in sports um and providing for the family now I mean, one of the things it said was pride at excelling in sports. And I'm like, well, that's so easy to twist to being just all consuming, Um, whether it's sports or, you know, fighting if you're in a a fancy world or something like that. And devotion to work or friends can also be stubbornness and and not seeing what's right. Um, And I think when they looked at the elements that were defining toxic masculinity it was the promotion of violence was was sort of up there which again goes with the idea of excelling with sports um misogyny and homophobia were the ones the elements that were listed um and again they're all elements of twisting how positive masculine traits are then turned into toxic ones yeah absolutely i think that there's um the element that really jumped out at me, uh, Megan sent around that very interesting video um, about Fight Club, is that the the guy on that mentioned um, bio truth and that you know toxic, well, masculinity. It's you know it's a natural part of biology, and I think um, that part of it, you know, the say, saying that you know men can't help themselves because they're built a certain way, ties into the ideas of toxic masculinity very closely because you know one can say well you know it's now you know that that kind of aggression that male aggression is immune to criticism because it's a natural part of who and you know what men are not even who men are i mean we're going way back to like you know basics here so i thought that that element of it this kind of biology that you know men are literally you know um constrained by their very makeup is is real plays a really big part in in the idea of toxic masculinity i agree and i think taking it right back to its roots like lucy says back to sort of the caveman era and you had to be devoted to your friends and your family because 
the ones who were devoted were the ones who brought back the meat and their progeny survived. They had to excel in sports because the ones who were the fastest and the strongest were the ones who brought home the meat. Um, and they had to provide for their family because, again, if they didn't, then their offspring wouldn't survive. So it's kind of kind of built in. But one of the things I found really interesting reading all the stuff that Megan sent through, I always have Bill Bailey's voice in my head when I say, speaking as a mother, I did read an awful lot and I picked up on the bits that they were talking about with children and the idea of how even childminders or school teachers or anybody just will treat a child differently from almost from conception um, as to whether they're boy or girl. I mean, the example I really liked was they had um, a gender neutral child that they dressed in gender, sorry, gender neutral baby that they dressed in gender neutral clothing and videoed it screaming. And they put it before a load of people and they, they said, oh, it's a girl. Why is it crying? They go, oh, it's really sad. And if they said it's a boy, why is it crying? They went, oh, it's really angry. And it's like, well, whatever reason it was, clearly it has been influenced by this. And again, talking about this with one of my um, mother friends on the way home from the school run, and she was saying there was a, a similar experiment that was carried out in film for BBC One where they changed, they put children who were female into male clothes and vice versa, and then put them with a childminder who should be, you know, at that age encouraging Gen no gender bias whatsoever but even so they were encouraging the girls to play with the dolls they're encouraging the boys to play with the legos and then were horrified when people turned around and said actually that's a girl playing with the lego and like oh my i never i never thought you know i didn't realize i was actually doing this and i think it is so ingrained that even something as minor as that as kids get older they're going to just it's just going to be so developed it's like even at this young age we were encouraged that girls did this and boys did that yeah, it's all about kind of, you know, these gender roles that we have to adhere to, which is you know, ridiculous. I mean, my mum likes to tell the story of some, I don't know, some person who was coming to the door to like sell something when I was a small child and I was dressed in blue. I had like a blue tracksuit I really liked, I don't know, as you do. And uh, apparently, you know, this this woman who just come to the door said, oh, what what a lovely little boy. And I'm so, she's, you know, it's a girl. Um, and then this woman, complete stranger, starts lecturing my mother about dressing her daughter in blue. And mum's just like, she likes blue? So I'll let her wear blue? Like, mm, there's nothing wrong with yeah. that. <laughs> you know, this happened to me as well as a baby. Uh, my, I, Basically, I was born and uh, I had loads of hair and it was bright red and then it all fell out and it didn't grow back for ages. So I was like a little bald baby. And of course, uh, I've worn blue. I love blue and my mum loves blue and I have blue eyes. So it was natural to dress me in blue. And yeah, she got, uh, you know, oh, what a lovely little boy without even, you know, they just assumed, which is shocking when it comes down to something like it's a colour. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, ladies, that your parents were right, because actually up until the Victorian era, it used to be that pale blue was seen as a soft feminine colour. And pink, because it was associated with the strong, aggressive red, was the boy's colour. Now, that is interesting. But so it's also shocking that we imbue something as simple as a colour with such <laughs> cultural significance. <laughs> well, it was also interesting from a behaviour point of view, a bit older as well. And I mean, they were talking an awful lot in all of these um, articles that Megan sent through about big boys don't cry and how boys are encouraged to sort of repress their emotions or go and cry in a toilet, be a man kind of thing. One of the studies said that if you look at the development of boys and girls, that actually boys do tend to get, toddler boys from three to five, tend to get 
very stressed, get easily frustrated, get very angry and will cry at the smallest thing. And I was actually saying this on the way home to a parent that you just need to look at my daughter and her male friends, we say boyfriends, male friends. (laughs) And we always give them some snacks on the way home. And if my daughter drops a snack, it will be like, oh, oh dear, well, never mind. You know, the the mice can have it, you know. Um, Whereas if the boys drop it, it's like total disaster. And we can't possibly be consoled by the fact that there is another crisp that you could have in the packet. And I have noticed this when she plays with boys that, my daughter can be, I mean, she can throw the most epic tantrums, but she is generally more chill than the boys who who just wear the emotions on their sleeves almost. And all the moms of boys I know are very good and they're always saying, well, we never tell them, you know, they can't cry. It's not, you know, it's fine to cry as a boy. And clearly all the boys that I know are naturally more inclined to be a little bit more, a little bit more weepy, I suppose is the only way I can describe it. And yeah, other kids of that age are being told no you mustn't be like that even though it's natural for them it's like no you, you don't cry boys don't cry don't don't show that don't be don't be angry just go and you know sit in the corner and work it out with the lego and things so you know whether it's babies or toddlers or whatever by the time they get to be young men there's really no hope for them almost we're moving into sort of why toxic masculinity is a problem and you know you're right with the the sort of the crying thing is a massive massive deal i mean it it comes up all over the place you see it time and time again in um film and literature uh, a non uh, genre fiction example is uh, one of my it's terrible that i love this film but it's great in one of those you know it's really bad but <laughs> it's great uh it's called the kid and it's got bruce willis in it and he it's got you know one of these ones where like your adult self self is uh confronted with your child self and you realize how far you've come from like the what you wanted to be when you grew up and you know again the crying thing comes up and then because he, he realizes he hasn't cried since he was eight years old you know something that you know comes up in preacher if if either of you have read preacher it's a brilliant comic you know, preacher Jesse Custer realizes, you know, he hasn't cried since, you know, his father was shot in front of him. So quite dark, but it it is something that you see time and time again. And this is just one of those examples where these kind of masculinity, gender tropes bleed out in really negative ways. So, you know, what other kinds of things makes toxic masculinity such a problem? Um, well, I think the thing that jumps out at me is, is sexual aggression and the, the sense of inevitability surrounding, you know, the fact that it is going to it's going to happen. And, you know, it's it shifts the, um, the the blame, the onus, the responsibility onto women for, you know, trying to spend their lives avoiding it. So that's like, you know, the, the whole I think toxic masculinity, you know, while it's bloody awful for men um it's it's equally terrible for women who have to deal with the consequences of you know this this idea that men can't control their sex drives which is actually terribly insulting to any of our male listeners i'm sorry i mean i I would be insulted by that because you know frankly that's just reducing half the population to no better than animals um, and, and that's it's shocking that, that, you know, we're actually that we're living in a kind of society that seems to be OK with this idea. I mean, obviously, we've, with the with the Me Too movements and 
you know, the, this all of the kind of um, sex scandals that have come out recently and, and p- people are hitting back against this, like, finally. Um, but, you know, just just the sheer quantity of comments and um, news articles and, and people coming out and saying, well, I'm, I'm, I can speak out these days. It's just, it's a sad indictment that we've let this slide. You know, it's been, it's been under the radar. And the reason it's been under the radar is because people have been, like, okay with it for for years and years and um you know why are they okay with it because it, it it's become accepted as part of a kind of normal masculine response to women so i think that that's you know the thing that really kind of gets me about toxic masculinity the fact that it's it's you know terrible for men but it's also terrible for women so it's actually a kind of shared problem i sort of see the rise of toxic masculinity being in a weird way a sort of response to feminism so you've got you know, men who could be just normal average men as, you know, in stories and films and in real life. And then suddenly the women come in and kick back and are challenging the patriarchy. And I almost feel like toxic masculinity is everybody in the male, sorry, not everybody, but certain people within um, certain males being, well, I'm going to defend these ideals rather than actually reevaluating them and go, okay, actually fair enough. I, you know, I should be devoted to my work and my friends, but, you know, actually taking it even further and turning it into stubbornness and and suspicion and and things like that. So I kind of feel like toxic masculinity has risen up almost like on the opposite side of feminism, like on a a balance of scales, almost, if that makes sense. Um, And that there are people who are trying to ramp it up and say men should be super this to combat the women who are coming in and going, actually, women are quite kick-ass as well. Well, men should be more kick-ass and, you know, women provide for their family. Well, men should provide more for their family. And it just, it almost feels like there are these extremists. And I know that there was an article, I think it was the Guardian article, which was terrible in every other respect, but was quite good in one respect by this guy kind of going, well, you kind of feel as a guy that either you're an absolute feminist or you're you're a toxic male and you can't be anywhere in between whereas actually there are quite a few guys in there who are going yeah you know we just we just want to be guys we we're happy with women as they are or better but at the same time you know we we don't really like this toxic idea but we just want to be ourselves and and better ourselves and we can't because we're kind of caught in the middle of this and i do think that's a a sort of a, a problem that you've kind of got this lost <laughs> lost majority and it's these people who are suffering I think as well as obviously women but this this lost majority are sort of they're not discussing their health problems or their emotions and they're not going to the doctors um, because of these things and then they're ending up with depression or early heart attacks or suicide I mean that that was all in the articles that Megan sent through that someone postulated that the 10 year age difference between uh, life expectancy is due to the fact that guys are just not encouraged to go to the doctors. They, they don't admit that they have a problem any earlier than women do when they do finally go to admit they got a problem. They don't go to the doctor for ages. When they do finally go to the doctor, they rebel against what the doctor tells them to do. Whereas I think women are just so used to it because we're, our bodies are subject to so much. We're just in and out of the doctors all the time for pills and you know headaches and all this kind of thing that it's just second nature to us but for guys it's like no mustn't be ill and so all of these guys are actually suffering as much as the women who are suffering at the hands of the toxic males so is all these guys in the middle i mean one of the things that i wanted to to bring up in in terms of toxic masculinity and the 
the problems that it you know causes is the kind of the way that a lot of it focuses on that kind of lack of emotion um you know and that that keeping everything in which obviously brings in other pieces as well but um two particular examples recent examples um where you kind of see this playing out was um the black mirror episode USS Callister where you have a guy in real life who is kind of he's trying he wants to fit in and he and he looks up to kind of that masculine ideal the 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 guy who's a bit of a player you know the the one who can talk to women who's not socially awkward who's you know considered generally attractive all that kind of thing and he sees this the ideal elsewhere but it's not him so what he does is sort of creates this fantasy world in game format where he can play, you know, where he feels safe to actually embody those masculine ideals. And it actually turns, it shows you just how, it does show you just how toxic that toxic masculinity is, you know, and and some of the things that that play out. I won't say anything more in case people haven't seen it. It is, it's the only, it's the only Black Mirror episode I've ever seen. And it's a good one to have seen because it was fantastic. And I was so impressed. And it's maybe you want to watch more of the series but I, I think exactly megan what what you were saying is, is totally right and the the um and the episode is great for the fact that it's a utter repudiation of toxic masculinity because i mean as as we were reading that article and the last line of it says that there is no place for a character like daily this guy um except as a villain and it's true i mean obviously he he is he's not a nice guy uh, but that's great that they've got the the idea of um you know this this nerd who wants to who idolizes this kind of like the, the captain of a heroic ship but it turns out that you know that that is not a a valid um ideal to look up to and it's certainly you know it, the only the only application it has in society today is negative um as it you know it impacts and hurts a lot of people around him so i thought that's a really great message to kind of take away from that episode yeah, and and the other like really recent example I was thinking of was Colossal. I don't know if either of you saw that film from last year. No, I haven't seen that one yet. No. Oh, well, I really enjoyed it. Um probably, you know, it's not that it doesn't have its flaws, but it's it's one of those films that just it actually does something different and new and it tries things out and I have a lot of respect for that, especially in the age of just rebooting everything because, you know, Hollywood, you know, God forbid anyone have a, an original idea. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, um, without, I don't, I don't want to give anything away. It's just kind of hard, but it's a, it does uh, take an interesting look at, again, this kind of, this idea of the man who, again, you kind of, you think, oh, okay, maybe this is just a nice guy. He's a little bit awkward. He's, you know, he's, he's trying to fit in and whatever. But then actually it turns out, you know, that he feels so frustrated because he doesn't, he sees his own life as not kind of living up to those ideals that people, you know, that represent in our media and those feelings of frustration, they build and build and build because he's been keeping them in and then boom, he kind of explodes and, you know, it's very negative. And then again, I'd say that that is also kind of a common trope in some ways, but it does highlight the 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 problem with toxic masculinity of of trying to keep your emotions in not not letting it out and alongside that kind of feeling of entitlement 
Um, and then, you know, the, the frustration you can feel when life doesn't live up to the fantasy. So, you know, we've talked a little bit around what toxic masculinity is generally. Let's sort of narrow it down into sort of science fiction, fantasy and horror tropes more specifically. So, you know, what are some of the, the worst tropes or even just um, kind of where these ideas most build in in the genre? So for me, you know, um, I was looking back at things like Hercules and, you know, Conan the Barbarian. Ah! John Carter was also like that. Um Prince of Persia. I, I, you know, I just sort of think of these things. You know, they're always these, these men who are chiseled and really muscular and they go out and, you know, they fight with their hands and they're just nothing can kill them. And they, yeah, all that kind of stuff. I'd have to throw in Predator as well. I, I just remember watching that as a, and sort of older teenage girl and going, wow, this, this is just like, so not aimed at me <laughs> and I mean it was a fantastic contrast with Alien which I watched just just before which is a brilliant film for all levels and all sexes and then you've got like Predator which is just it's like die hard with aliens really you talk about using these um, masculine tropes to absurdities I, I don't know if I'm going to get shot down in flames here but one thing I always found was the Princess Bride was a very very male movie and it's almost like all these tropes are put into different characters of the character of Wesley and, and an ego and everything um, simply because the girl has no agency at all. And she's just kind of passed around all these guys. Um, I mean, we've got everything there. We've kind of got the devotion to work or friends with an ego Montoya. We've got excelling in sports um, with all the, the fencing um, and trying to provide for the family and save the girl. And I would say that if it wasn't such a wonderful heartwarming film and the characters weren't so likable, they could so easily be turned to toxic masculinity. And I think that comes back to what I was saying at the beginning, that you've got all these really positive things and it's a really fine line, particularly within fiction where everything is exaggerated as to whether that just oversteps the line a little bit. I mean, you've got like say blatant, blatant ones like Predator, but The Princess Bride still a brilliant movie, lots of fantastic role models. I don't think it does step over the line, but I think it's so close to it. Oh, well, yeah, but it's not a serious, it's, it's actually like, the whole point of the Princess Bride is to send up the genre in its in its way. I mean, like it, it's a framing narrative that has like a framing narrative around it. So you're very much aware that it's a story and it's a storybook story, storybook love story. So you know the with her, you know, running with her hair through the wind and like, oh, I will never love again. It is kind of like it's sending up all of those, you know, the Disney princesses, the the, the pre-Raphaelite women, the, you know, the, the kind of the poor farmhand who has to go and make his fortune. So I, I feel like, um, you know, this is my defence of the Princess Bride. I, I really don't think there's any, anything um, particularly toxic about that film just because, you know, it's actually set itself up to not be serious like it's definitely I don't think it's making any really serious kind of remarks about um, gender, particularly because I think it's actually like, you know, it's set out to be um, a, a bit of a send up. But it does highlight one of those kind of key tropes that does play into the toxic masculinity. It's that kind of the way that the women have to be saved by the men and it's like the men's responsibility and that is sort of one of those tropes that comes up again and again. And you go back to John Carter, he's got to save the princess of Mars, you know, Prince of Persia, he's got to save the princess. And, you know, I mean, that was one of my favourite games growing up. And I wanted to save the princess and I wanted the princess to marry me. But, you know, 
that I think is one of those really common tropes that is potentially quite damaging and we see just time and time again in fantasy in particular, I would say. And again, like Lucy says, it, it is still a good film and it is taking fun out of itself. I just it I think it's the fact that the woman is so lacking in agency and so two-dimensional. Um and we know that Robin Wright can do a fantastic <laughs> get a fantastic performance. And she just kind of gets passed around by all these guys. So yeah, it's that's why I say I kind of torn with it. On the one hand, it's still a brilliant film, but it's brilliant yet still has all these in, ingrained ideas within it. Going back to uh you know the the what we were talking about with uh, Alien and um, Predator and uh, the, the the whole kind of Conan the Barbarian. What about James Bond? Because I know we've talked about James Bond before, and I think I've possibly even defended it. But I have to say that James Bond is kind of the the modernised Conan, burnished up and put in a in a you know a nice suit and given a shiny handgun and sent off into you know a much more kind of civilised society like these settings casinos and, and yachts but he's he really different from that kind of the, the macho warrior type I, I don't know don't think so because you know like his his whole kind of raison d'etre is is to be a, a super spy a great warrior like he's clearly very good with his gun and that's totally a euphemism <laughs> because of course there's the you know his this thing about women you know like yeah. he gets the girl at the end of every single film and it's always a different one okay so right, I, <laughs> right now all i'm thinking about is uh dr horrible sing-along blog are you guys fans yeah yeah, yeah just uh <laughs> my hammer is my penis <laughs> <laughs> oh yes i love that line sorry <laughs> anyway carry on <laughs> No, no, that that was my point, really, just that, you know, I, I think that th this kind of um, heroic warrior figure, it takes many forms and incarnations. And I think that, you know, you can just, you, you, you know, you can't really, you can put him in a, in a pretty suit, but you can't really hide the trope. And I think he really is there underneath it. Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, spot on. Going back to what I was talking about earlier with the elements of masculinity. Um, do we have promotion of violence within Bond? I would say so pretty much at every yep. turn. Do we have misogyny? Absolutely. Um, do we have homophobia? Well, I can't really speak for the modern Bonds, but I certainly remember when I was a kid growing up, there was one, I think it was a Roger Moore one, where they had two gay assassins coming after him. And, oh, their presentation was just horrible and creepy. And they really ramped up the, the campness and the gayness and made it into a villainous thing. And I was like... At the time, I was like, I feel really uncomfortable about this, and I don't know why, because I was quite young when I, I saw all these. And now when I grow up, I just I don't think I could ever watch that film again, even though I think I think it was the Roger Moore ones, which are always a bit more lighthearted, but it was just awful. But then again, we go back to this whole idea that it's it's all the really positive things about masculinity. So the devotion to work, to friends or to your country, being able to excel in sports, being able to provide for the family and, and rescue the women. It's all of those fantastically wonderful, positive masculine things just ramped up to the point where they actually become toxic. Um, and also just to the point where they become an expectation, I think is part of the problem. So, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that you know it's great that you can go out and and protect your loved ones that's fantastic but if it's then expected that you will be responsible to protect the woman or whoever you don't have any kind of other option it's just that expectation it should be about choice and you can 
maybe protecting someone is about dealing verbally, which again, you know, someone like Jean-Luc Picard, as opposed to <laughs> <laughs> Captain Kirk. You've got the really great captain who, he's a born negotiator. He's a, a politician, but a good one. So maybe we shouldn't call him a politician. But, you know, he's... <laughs> He deals with things in a very different way. It's still very mask, you know, it's, it's wonderfully masculine. And so, I mean, ugh, Patrick Stewart. Yes. Something we agree on, Megan. <laughs> yes. It's just a very different kind of approach. And so that is where you kind of have that positive role model. And, and even then, Patrick Stewart or, I'm sorry, Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> He is not his character. It's fine. <laughs> Although I, I would say Patrick Stewart is an awesome man and defender of rights of everybody anyway. Absolutely. But, you know, e even though he doesn't support violence, but he will use it if he has to. Yeah, I just think that's a really nice example of sort of a, a positive version of the, the masculinity. Not that, you know, there's Kirk is terribly bad. Um, I think original series Star Trek had a lot going for it in that it had kind of a, a range of representations of masculinity. So you have like kind of the over-egged Conan <laughs> figure of Kirk, you know, with the shirt ripping and the, the always getting the girl and he we just expect that and he expects it and well, it just happens. But then you also have the the intellectual who is also, I feel like he's kind of emotionally aware despite the fact that he doesn't get emotions at all, as in Spock. And then, you know, you've got the other sort of very clever, but again, very different masculine of McCoy. So, you know, that's that's an interesting range. You don't just have sort of the one male figure that is the ultimate. You actually have that nice range, which I think is really, really important. Um, why do we keep talking about Star Trek? Sorry, because I love like, Star it's Trek. Just something you know, <laughs> this happens on these episodes where it always comes back to Star Trek, and I'm like, okay, I I did watch Star Trek, but I don't have this intimate knowledge. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've watched a lot of Star Trek in my life. I love Star Trek. <laughs> I'm I'm really sorry, Lucy. Before we move it away from Star Trek, may oh. I just make one point? <laughs> I'm really sorry. But I just, I really like Megan's idea of, or her comment about expectation and comparing Jean Luc Picard with Bond. So, with Bond, you've, like you say, he, you know that he's going to save the day and save the girl. But more importantly, he's going to get the girl at the end. The woman, the woman always falls for him. Whereas, if you look at Jean Luc Picard, not only does he save the girl, he usually saves whole planets as well. And he has no expectations about what will happen. He does it for the good of everybody. And he doesn't expect reward and he doesn't expect to get the girl. And I think that is perhaps one major distinction between toxic masculinity and real masculinity. Yes, okay, you can save on a personal level and save the pretty woman, but real men save any women, any children, any planet, whatever, and they don't expect reward for it. They just do it because it's the right thing to do. I was thinking about this from, so I used to play my very first computer. My parents had this old Mac and it was great. And we had, I think, uh, Space Invaders and Prince of Persia. Those were the two games that we had. And I played a lot of Prince of Persia. And I just remembered this because I was thinking about how you just go through all these levels and you're just fighting to get to the princess. And I can't even remember if you know the princess, but like the idea that once you get there, she would fall at your feet and fall in love with you and whatever. And it's really hard not to just think, well, of course she would. 
which is ridiculous just because you're saved by someone or you know what what does that mean if sorry i'm oh, not, I'm not no, explaining sorry. it right but sorry prince you're not my type no i'm sorry <laughs> no, exactly <laughs> but why is that something that we just assume is going to happen that oh oh we hear about the the woman in the tower i suppose shrek sort of sends this up in a way you know because shrek goes and, and saves the princess and you know well the ridiculous prince goes along to try and save the princess and he just expects her to fall in love with him and you know it, it, it's all inverted in that so but wh- why is that even a thing why do we think that oh that because you've saved me or you've done something nice i now owe you my well, love and devotion well that comes down to entitlement doesn't it uh and the the culture of male entitlement uh women as prizes um I'm I'm glad you actually brought up Shrek because I hadn't actually crossed my radar, and yet it's a really great example of um of of a kind of cross examination of like toxic masculinity and and at the same time kind of Disney-fied fairy tale tropes, which you know are, are not don't have a great track record for representation. But yeah, I mean you couldn't Shrek is obviously the hero of the piece, and he's certainly not a typical hero, and he's not particularly you know. He likes to live in a swamp, you know, he's not a, a dashing warrior. He doesn't really exhibit a lot of the kind of, well, I'd say macho things. But I mean, he does, he is quite mannish in other regards, Like, but but the more ordinary kind of mannish, like the kind of scratching your ass kind of thing in, in front yeah. of, in public, that, that kind of idea, which is at least a bit more realistic and down to earth than the kind of perfect prince. So yes. I think that's quite a good example, actually, of, of a film that, you know, doesn't conform and is quite aware that it doesn't conform. My only problem with Shrek is that then, you know, he ends up getting the girl, but it's only okay kind of because she ends up not being the beautiful princess. And that kind it's of true. then undermines the sort of inversion that it's got up until that point. And I think, you know, it would have just been great if the ogre got together with the beautiful princess. If I might steal for a little bit of self-promotion there, that's exactly the point in my article that I wrote for Tor on Strange Magic, the George Lucas film, that there are a lot of good points to Shrek. But at the end of the day, both Shrek and Shrek 2 has the idea that you can only be happy together if you're two ogres together or two beautiful people together. You can't have one of each um whereas strange magic kind of went that that extra step yeah um, that's a very good point but i wanted to, to risk lucy's wrath by um, <gasps> again not not star trek but by going to fairy tales um i've just been researching fairy tales for um an upcoming project and i read through the um complete grimm's fairy tales making notes as i went and uh, i hadn't quite finished but at last count i was at number 244 and that's a lot of fairy tales to read but all of them oh actually no so that's a lie maybe 80 percent of them had the guy getting the princess at the end quite often not a named princess it was just like oh here have my daughter she happens to be a princess or getting the girl or anything so you were coming back to that idea about why do you think that if the man slays the dragon and saves the girl that they should get the girl i think it's it's been ingrained in our culture and going back, I suppose, to cavemen, because obviously fairy tales are ancient and they come from folk tales which told word of mouth around the fire. It's this idea of women perhaps being a reward and it goes well back in our culture. But like we were talking about with Shrek, I've got another two, another couple of kids films in particular that are really going against this. So I was mostly disappointed with Frozen on rewatching it, but I did like the idea that 
Hans clearly didn't get the girl because he sorry spoilers because he's the bad guy um but Christoph also kind of didn't get the girl it's sort of implied at the end that he and Anna are together but they're they're not going to have the huge wedding or anything like that in How to Train Your Dragon you've got Hiccup and Astrid and Astrid is very kick-ass and it, it almost looks like it's going to be the perfect setup of the nerdy boy, you know, becomes really powerful and fantastic and, and gets the girl at the end and everything is happy and he becomes chief. And it kind of does that, but it also kind of doesn't. So at the end, he's not all masculine and buffed up. In fact, at the end, he has strictly, I suppose, if you look at it, got a disability because he's lost his leg. And But it matches him up beautifully with Toothless, who has also lost part of his tail. And they, I think the whole point is that they work together. And he kind of does get the girl. They don't have a big get together, don't have a big marriage ceremony. I can't even remember if she kisses him or just shows him more affection. But in a weird way, it's almost sidelined because he's got the dragon and he's got the village and he's got respect and he's got a place in the society. And when I was looking at this, I was thinking in an awful lot of kids stuff, you see far less toxic masculinity because it's less about getting the girl until you get to teenagers when it's all about getting the girl and more about finding your place in society and in particular finding your place in a group. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I actually I have I've seen both of those um, films and I haven't really kind of thought about it like that. But you're absolutely right. And, yeah, maybe we should be looking to uh, kids films to be, you know, maybe leading the way in kind of that kind of representation rather than having women as prizes. Well, it's back to what we were saying at the beginning, wasn't it? That toxic masculinity starts as early as going into the childminders or what you dress your baby in. So kids films are a good place to certainly focus that kind of thing and I think there's a lot of good stuff out there but also it's outweighed by perhaps all the terrible stuff that's out there that my daughter wants to sit and watch as well <laughs> hey I I watched plenty of terrible terrible stuff so no, we totally don't need to hear about the Morris porn <laughs> we totally do <clears throat> sidestepping that do you tell me that away from children's films for talking about Morris porn <laughs> got bells on (laughs) i did want to mention um i'm just gonna yeah ignore that so (laughs) um arthurian legends and like chivalric code so that i I feel like a lot of these kinds of masculine ideals come sort of from the chivalric code but i i really liked um the way that robin hobb sort of played with this idea especially when you you have like the characters who are you know named after particular traits that are I guess to live up to for I guess they're named in in the hope that they will live up to that so you know chivalry and verity and regal all this kind of thing and and it was really um I just really liked how you know it was the chivalrous son that uh fathers the bastard child and I I just really like that in in inversion in the Farsia trilogy and I just wanted to to give a shout out to Robin Hobb because she's fantastic. She is. And I mean, it's been a long time since I studied my Grail law, but my memory of the Arthurian romances, and perhaps Lucy knows a bit more about this, is that it was designed to romanticize the past and it was to give current warlords and current sort of scummy kings, you know, who didn't really feel like they had much of a past, what with all the warring and beating people up and raping and pillaging, that they had this kind of noble background and that you know there there were good things in it but there was also an awful lot of violence in it and it was it was I suppose where the masculine ideals of, of these greater ideals sort of came came into being 
So I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of the fighting. And so I think we, we had an episode maybe a month or two ago about violent narratives and how a lot of genre fiction relies on a kind of climax to the, the narrative where it involves violence. And maybe because, you know, I don't know if it's a chicken and egg situation, which, which came first, but the male heroes that we often see are, they have to participate in this, this physical violence in order to really be a sympathetic character in some ways. And, and I, so I wanted to talk about that, but the, some examples that I was thinking of, um, was Marco and Saga, uh, who, which is a fantastic comic series. If you've not read it, um, I highly recommend it. Marco is, you know, he is an ex foot soldier, um, who, you know, initially he sort of was, you know, really for the war, but then as he goes on, he finds himself becoming more of a pacifist and then eventually gives himself up as a prisoner of war, um, as a conscientious objector. And he's a really interesting character because when you get the flashbacks and so on, and you see how he's gone from this kind of almost brainwashing of, of that kind of ideal of you go and you fight for your, your country, your beliefs, your, your family, that sort of thing to no fighting is, is just not helping anyone. Um, and it's just, it's a really interesting kind of progression for the character and, and a look at that. And then I also sort of thought of Iron Man three, which I actually really enjoyed. I don't know. I, you know, again, it has its problems. An interesting look at someone who kind of defines their self and their self-worth as being a superhero. He is a superhero, but that superhero dumb is also about to kill him with the the piece of um shrapnel that's going to, you know, go into his heart and he's he's trying to give up being Iron Man, but he can't separate himself from this larger than life masculine ideal that he's created as a kind of mask for the rest of life. So I thought that was a really interesting look at sort of someone who can't get in with the the physical fighting or trying to step away from it as well and how much of Tony Stark's personality is caught up in this ability to be able to go out and fight the big things to stop everything and if he can't do that who is he and what is his worth well i think male superheroes in themselves are problems when it comes to toxic masculinity i mean you get some fantastic ones i think <laughs> i think one of the articles that megan sent around said and then of course there's superman who is just not necessarily toxic masculine but he's kind of 2d masculine he is everything that a man should be with none of the flaws or the interests that a real man would have. I mean, I always really disliked Superman and I always had a real soft spot for Batman. But when I was reading Barnes and Noble um, guest blog, where they were talking about seven inspiring heroes who reject toxic masculinity, and they mentioned Dick Grayson as Robin when he turns into Nightwing. And he kind of goes, well, I like the hero thing. And, you know, I really think it's important to save people, but Batman has this darkness and I don't really like that. That's not me. I'm just going to save people and be myself. And I kind of went, actually, yes, I think, although I really have a soft spot for Batman, um, partly because he doesn't have superpowers, he just relies on strength and gadgets. Yes! <laughs> Which makes him more human and therefore more appealing than somebody who just has x-ray vision, can fly, whatever. But I then went, actually, yeah, maybe Dick Grayson is 
Although he's always mocked, interestingly enough, and he's always seen as the weaker one, which probably isn't helped by the um, outfits he was forced to wear in the 60s. He is a better role model than Batman. Strong words. (laughs) (laughs) Not necessarily more entertaining, but I suppose that's the next step along. I mean, I haven't read a lot of the comics that he this this guest blogger was talking about, uh, but I am actually inspired to go out and look them out and sort of see how they develop this character and how they make a superhero character who nevertheless retains a really crucial part of humanity that I think a lot of others have have lost. So unbeknownst to listeners, uh, very kindly, Lucy and Megan allowed us to have a brief pause there so I could go and get in my cat who was outside having a cat fight with someone. Um, And as we had a break, we had a little bit of a chat um, and we were talking about sort of more positive elements that are coming into films. So we were thinking about characters that might have a lot of what we would describe toxic masculine traits but at the same time are moving towards more positive elements. I know that Megan and I offline were talking about Riddick in Pitch Black, who is perhaps one of the the most masculine characters I could think of in all the films that I actually like. But there is a point where he cries at Carolyn's death. And Megan sort of said to me, oh, yes, Riddick cries. And I was like, does he? And then when I looked at it, He does cry, but he does it in the middle of the rain. So you can't actually see the tears because they're covered with the rain. And I feel that seems to be a trend that is coming in a little bit now that you did have characters like James Bond, who were very two dimensional and and very clear and straight cut. But now you've got characters like Riddick who have the same sort of traits, but they want to be more interesting. They want to give them more emotional depth. And so they're starting to bring in this positivity of character, but not too much because, you know, he's crying in the rain, so it's still okay to hide it. I mean, what do you guys think? Do you think that there are some characters out there who just are big and arny and, and all that kind of thing, but at the same time have a slightly softer side that comes through, but not too much? Well, I was thinking of examples of, because, you know, you mentioned the whole, the, the crying um, the, on screen particularly, and the two examples I came up with um, aren't particularly kind of what you'd say are like macho male examples. I mean, the first one I was thinking of was um, the scene with Moulin Rouge at the end where Ewan McGregor just starts bawling. And it's horrible. Like, it really, really stays with you. I mean, it, stay, it stayed with me I, every time I... I kind of think of it, I think of that scene where he's literally doing ugly crying and it's horrible to listen to, but it's brilliant. It's brilliant because it's realistic. Um, but again, he's kind of, he's portrayed as like a bohemian poet who wears his heart on his sleeve and, you know, that kind of behaviour may not seem that unusual. And then the other one was like The Hobbits when Gandalf falls into has a doom and they're all like Frodo turns to face the camera and he's actually got like tear tracks down his face and you know clearly their grief is very real there and it's shown but again they're hobbits and not to say that they're not macho but it's not our typical kind of it's not a stereotypical kind of what you were talking about where you'd say that oh you know that's someone who I would have thought is a bastion of like you know toxic masculinity or at least you know the masculine elements and oh look they're actually underneath so I have to say my examples are probably a little bit uh you know I mean like we'd need someone like gladiator to to be a good example and I don't think he cries in that does he he does oh he totally does he does he does yeah 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 he balls his eyes out 
Because I don't, I didn't remember him crying. I just remember him looking sad. Oh no, he cries. He gets his yeah. cry on. He does. But then later on, so does uh, Joaquin Phoenix. He he sort of gets really teary when he discovers his sister's um, sister's betrayal. Um, so you have kind of both sides there, kind of being, you know, it's all right to cry if you're a big hunky hero, and it's all it's also right to cry if you're kind of a, a mad, insane villain. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned about the Hobbits, and I haven't seen The Lord of the Rings for several years, although we do regularly watch it. I'm saying seen, of course, and also read the book, but I was thinking it would be more obvious in the films as to whether Aragorn, Boromir, and Legolas cry. I know that Legolas doesn't, but then he has less emotions than um, Data from Star Trek. Sorry, Lucy, I realise he's in the episode. But I'm pretty sure that Aragorn and Boromir cry, and I'm pretty sure that Boromir cries as well, but I don't know if, I don't know if he does it in the books. My whole memory of the lord of the rings i'm afraid has been transplanted by the films but that's not a bad thing no i, I have to admit that um it, i read the book of quite a long time ago i mean a long time ago and that kind of detail um hasn't stayed with me i mean i wouldn't be that surprised because you know i can i can just see Tolkien saying oh he bowed his head into his hands and wept that that mm-hmm. kind of thing i could i could possibly see that that happening um so yeah, potentially. But then you could say Aragorn's kind of a bit, a bit of more of a kind of woke. He's he's kind of picks up on like what you were saying earlier about um, warrior, you know, the kind of warrior type, but also being. Um, I mean, for example, he's like bilingual. You know, he can speak the language of the elves. He was raised among them, so he was raised in a different culture from his own. He's obviously a student of history. Um, so he and he knows a lot about uh, the, you know geography and how to live in the wild and um, and yet he's also a fantastic warrior and he says quite a few times that he's never wanted power and isn't any isn't interested in being king so maybe the Lord of the Rings because you'd think that maybe that would be like a you know it's it was written a long time ago it does have a lot of stereotypes in you'd think that maybe they'd be it would be quite conformist but actually you know okay Aragorn he does get the girl and that's a different you know we could we could go on to a whole different topic about Tolkien's women or the portrayal of women in in that but I think as far as Aragorn is concerned I think he's not really the typical kind of Conan style of, of man. When you were talking about ugly crying just there it reminded me of Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back because that's very interesting. You have you have the first one, The New Hope, and then you have The Empire Strikes Back and you have The Return of the Jedi. And it's obviously part of, well, Luke's element of the story is him becoming completely kick-ass and fantastic. And he does do the ugly crying, but does he technically do it before he's macho? When he turns up at Jabba's palace, he's like all uber and fantastic and in control. And I don't think he cries from then on. But it is interesting that up until that point, he is allowed to cry and bawl his eyes out and uh, and have a complete breakdown. Mm. Um, it's interesting that we're, we're, we're splitting them into types, aren't we? Because as in the apart from Gladiator, I've just said the examples that I immediately came up with were like more of the kind of rounded kind of male characters possibly i'm not using the term feet, but like they they're obviously more in touch with their feminine side they're more in touch with their feelings um you know maybe they aren't uh they're not necessarily fighters um so they're not hugely physical um and and we are associating you know saying okay well it's okay for these guys to to cry and to show their their humanity but it's not oh it's not so okay for you know the ones who everyone thinks are supposed to be 
you know, the ones who you'd say, you know, when you say the the phrase man up, which I've been trying not to say, because I think it's awful. um, But, but, you know, the kind of people who you were just saying, you know, like, like the Conan kind of characters and the the masculine ideals. The masculine ideals. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I mean, to use the Star Wars example, it's Luke, the emotional farm boy who is the one who cries. It's not Han. You don't see Han crying at any point. Mm. Yeah. And that that's my point, which is, mm. you know, why doesn't he cry? Shouldn't he cry? Should he be crying? Uh is is it unrealistic to to, you know, expect that this guy who has, I don't know, Star Wars that well, but you know, like everyone has their demons and um you know, why why shouldn't we all be allowed to express them? In times of emotional crisis. And now I'm thinking, does um, Harrison Ford, when he's playing Indiana Jones, does he cry in The Last Crusade when his father gets stabbed and he has to go and try and save him? I know that he gets really angry and that, you know, provokes him into action, but I don't know if he ever cries at that point. But he does. But then having said that, in Indiana Jones, they do have that wonderful moment where the two of them are sitting on the um, uh, on the airship. And Harrison Ford sort of sits there and goes, "Where well, the last time we sat down together, I ordered a chocolate milkshake. And his father's going, what? What's all this about? And he's like, well, I haven't really spoken to you for all my life. And his father's like, never mind that. We must hunt for the grail. And I just, I kind of like that bit. It's like, you know, actually, as a kid, this really mattered to me that you didn't talk to me. And it might be brief, but it is kind of in there. And then obviously later on, you know, he then kicks ass anyway. I know this might be a strange one. I don't know what you guys think of it, but... I watched um, Terminator 2 and the bit at the end where he self-sacrifices himself, not just, sorry, Ronald Schwarzenegger's character, the Terminator self-sacrifices himself, that had me blubbing. And I kind of went, that's that's kind of, you saved the world and you don't get the girl and you don't get the boy and you don't get the happy ending. You just destroy yourself to save everybody. It's kind of coming back to that idea between Bond and Jean-Luc Picard of, you've done this fantastic masculine thing, you've saved everybody and you're going to take that extra step and not expect anything. I always yeah, thought but, that was kind of a... But does the expectation be become sort of nullified because he's not a real boy? Oh. Well, well be, you know, we, we don't have... Develops. Yeah, but we don't have the same expectations for what is basically a robot. It, you don't expect the robot necessarily to get the girl. No, but you would expect the robot to survive because he is the height of masculinity. He is devoted. He excels in sports. He provides for his family, coming back to all the positive ideas. Yeah. Um, he just kicks ass. He's He promotes violence. Um, we don't know about misogyny or homophobia, but he is the ultimate man. I mean, that was always the point of our that he was, he always took on roles in the 80s where he was the ultimate. And and then he kind of goes and does this. And I was like, oh, that's that's kind of not what I expected, but uh, but that's a trope in its own right, isn't it? The heroic sacrifice. That is true. That is true. Maybe I just have a soft spot for that film that's overriding my sense here. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about the sort of using, I guess, comedy to look at the sort of masculine ideals um, and taking those to absurdity. So I, I wanted to talk about Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> I mean, he's great. But, you know, you have a lot of those things, you know, because um, one uh, aspect of kind of the the, the toxic masculinity piece that we, we haven't really touched on, but it's that kind of 
the thing where you know real men are out like the doers they're not sitting there reading books and they're not you know the the nerdy studiers or whatever and i guess like that takes things like buzz lightyear or i don't know if anybody else watched this bbc series called my hero with- oh with Adler hanlon yes yeah oh, which, which kind of does a similar thing where you have these kind of men who are you know super powered and they're go out and get them and you know all this but they're really dumb they're just like <laughs> they're so dumb they are examples of where they're using kind of that the extreme end of kind of the sort of the conan extremes those just you know completely you know physically powerful and they can do anything and they've got all this but they just they're so completely encapsulated that idealistic view they completely lose sight of what it is to be like, you know, a <laughs> uh, normal yeah. functioning person. And I think that's the a really- The term is encapsulated. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> um, yeah. That, and that's, I, I think, kind of a, a, a really nice positive way of looking at and dissecting sort of the toxic masculine tropes um, and, and in kind of a lighthearted way without sort of demeaning, you know, the, the issues that are caused by them. Well, again, it's that whole idea of things are moving forward. So you you still have your toxic masculine characters, but they are showing elements of positivity or elements of what would be femininity and softness in crying or whatever or self-sacrifice. But then you've also got the sort of the side where they're taking the mick out of, like you say, toxic masculinity ideals and therefore demeaning them is not quite the right word, but satire has always been fantastic at undermining um the big issues and i think like you say this is a, a good positive step that's moving forward and again in the kids cartoon you've got the, the thinking one the safe quiet one who is um woody who is is he the hit well i suppose they're kind of the whole point of that it's almost like a buddy movie isn't it it's two elements yes. of the male psyche coming together and going actually you need the the dumb but fantastic Buzz Lightyear, and you also need this element of thinkiness and, and overcautiousness that is Woody, and together they make a fantastic pairing. Um, so you're right, it is kind of taking it apart and taking a mick out of it a little bit, but also making a serious point again for our kids to learn from. We should clearly be watching more children's movies. Then you have like on the flip side, you have a character like Hulk, which is kind of the you know modern Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde thing where you've got again taken it the masculine ideal to the absolute extreme but in less of a, a comic let's let's look at it you know kind of thing but at the same time it is in a way dissecting it the toxic masculinity principles in that becoming hulk is so problematic for bruce banner you know bruce is c- constantly trying to control that element of him but it just keeps coming out and when you know he is the this big beefy dude who is entirely ruled by id it's it is problematic and as bruce the very clever um calm character you know he is actually bruce's ideal is not the the toxic masculine at all and and hulk is is more the what he's trying to avoid is that the Jekyll and Hyde syndrome? Yes. 
we kind of started all this off by looking at toxic masculinity and thinking of characters that really define this. We kind of moved on a little bit to talking about some characters who still have a lot of these qualities, but also exhibit more feminine or human or positive qualities, however you want to describe it. Um, but I wonder if you guys had some really, really good examples of guys that were, I want to say men's men, but that's not quite right. But good role models for boys, for men that completely defy the toxic masculinity ethos and are good, solid characters. What what do we think of that? I can start. I know that Megan sent out a um, list of decent men in fiction by electric literature. And I like the fact that they said um, the whole list could actually have been um consisted of male dogs because there were a lot of really good um dog characters out there that were all men and were all really good but they they had some really good ones in there i like the fact they had john watson who is the perfect foil to sherlock holmes um i was quite surprised they came out with jeeves but i suppose i could kind of see that i really liked um gabrielle oak but i mean it's been a long time since i read hardy but i'm pretty sure that um Bathsheba really hates him at the end because she's kind of settled for him but the ones i really liked um were Sam Gamgee and Captain Carrot. I thought they were two really good examples from um, fantasy fiction that just ticked every single box for me. Mm. Sam is a great one because, you know, it just demonstrates kind of all of the the, the kind of in characteristics of, you know, someone who isn't the main part of the story, but is like, and but is more than a sidekick, you know, he's, like clearly quite an evolved human being um and yet it's almost you couldn't put him in the lead role um which is a shame in a way because he's actually you know but he's, he's very stable as a character but yeah he's a good example well it's that dick grayson and batman thing again isn't it he is the dick grayson to frodo's batman frodo is the tortured soul the one yeah wracked by ga- doubt indecision insecurity and then he's got the guy who's coming up next to him and go, yes, I want to be a hero. I want to save the world, but I'm not so sure I want to turn to the dark side to do it. So I, I guess there, there is kind of that. But the criteria within that um, electric literature I, um, article was that the character must not be emotionally or physically abusive. They must be honest with and or supportive of friends and lovers. Uh, they mustn't use people for money or sex and they mustn't predicate affection on virginity, which I thought was pretty obvious. But I mean, there was the, the whole point. I must be honest with or supportive of friends and lovers. I kind of feel like that's almost too much to ask of a character within literature or within film, because a lot of good characters have dark secrets and conflict and motivation come from an internal darkness and an internal struggle, which they won't necessarily share with friends and lovers. And part of the the fun of the story is it coming out and being dealt with and being exposed and helping them to grow. So I don't really know how well that criteria mm. fits. Do you know what? You've raised a very interesting point. I know I haven't forgotten my, uh, my favourite men, but um, <laughs> you've made a really, really interesting point in that that's the point why Sam isn't the one of the main characters and main heroes of the story is because are these people just not interesting enough to be in the title role? I mean, like we like, we like the dark secrets. We like tortured souls. This is the stuff that keeps on, you know, keeps us reading or keeps, keeps us watching. You know, I, we, we like Aragorn and Frodo have such interesting journeys and they're such different people, but, but do you feel like you could be as engaged if Sam was the main, if Sam was the one taking the ring? to Mount Doom 
you know, I'm not sure I would be because he doesn't have Frodo's um, innate kind of vulnerability and the, you know, this that kind of relationship that Frodo has with Bilbo in that Bilbo was considered the adventurer and that Frodo can't quite live up to that same kind of desire to just run off and have an adventure. For him, it breaks him. So, like, you just don't have any of that um, in there. So I feel like, you know, maybe we're we're saying that, oh, we, we should have more characters like this. But but is that the very problem? The problem that we don't have more characters like this is because they're they're less interesting to, to read about. Well, I mean, the perfect example of that is Captain Carrot. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Pratchett books and particularly the the City Watch books. And my favourite bits are where there's just a little bit of darkness in Carrot and you just wonder how much he knows, like where he takes the the sword out and lays it in front of Fred and Nobby and goes, well, didn't all of our guys swear a lot, swear an oath to the king? And there's this very he- heavily laden word and Angua keeps going on and going, surely nobody can be that simple without being incredibly complex. And it's this whole idea that he's got hidden depths that really bring the character to life. And it again, going back to Sam Gamgee Frodo, we've got Captain Carrot and he's the perfect support for Vimes, who maybe is perhaps... Is he the perfect non-toxic male? I mean, he's not emotionally or physically abusive. He does use violence, but only in protecting things. He asked, you see, is he honest and supportive? We're back again to that whole idea that he has lots of secrets. And half of the fun is seeing all of his wordplay and his um, lack of truth with veterinary. They're always the best ones. But he doesn't use people for money and he doesn't predicate affection on virginity. So maybe, although Captain Carrot on the face of it looks like best role model perhaps Sam Vimes is it's so hard to tell sorry Megan because you don't read these books this is <laughs> this kind of turned into mine and Lucy's uh, debate that's all right I mean I my only thing here is that I maybe argue against you Lucy in that um I find sometimes that the the main characters are actually the most dull characters and uh the example I was thinking of was Buffy as I don't think Buffy is a terribly interesting character herself um and it's those around her that keep me interested and yeah so I I don't know I think if Sam were the main character I'd be perfectly happy with that yeah, actually, right. So one of the um, it's it's funny because one of the articles you sent round um actually has this as an example. It was also my example, which was really I was really it was amazing to find that. But um, I really wanted to mention Prince Zuko from Avatar. Yes. And oh my God, Prince Zuko is just one of my many, many, many animated crushes. Ah. Uh, god why are they animated it's so annoying um but yeah it's it's really and the little summary that they write this is from the barnes and noble um article is just really good because he says that over the course of three seasons he goes from the always angry antagonistic vessel father's will to a remorseful rebellious prince uh who learned that nobody can take away your honor Uh, it's something you gain or lose by your own actions and i was like ah that's such a good summary because he is he's like an example of someone who has that his arc is is essentially kind of about rebuffing toxic masculinity he's mm-hmm. he's kind of like 
throwing off uh, the shackles of his father's incredibly like toxic, as I said, will and his the environment that he grew up in, saying well, honor is everything, violence is everything. You have to go out there and you have to earn it. Um, and and in the end, it's just it becomes it's so so much of a joy to watch his arc because you you get him at the end where he's like talking to a frog, trying to introduce himself to Ang and the gang, like you know, oh hi, I'm Zuko. Like, he doesn't know what to do because he's he's this kind of like developed so much throughout that um that storyline from like you know he really is very one-dimensional very angry um and he becomes like a really feeling character and someone who you you know that he is maybe like that all the way underneath but it took you know you have to take him out of his kind of like that that toxic environment um and you know obviously the, the time he spends um with Iroh, um, that obviously is, is has a, a big effect on him too. Mm. But I thought that, you know, overall, like his his arc is really representative of, you know, how to do it right, how to throw off those kind of um very damaging characteristics and, you know, embrace who you are kind of underneath. And and that, that makes that means, you know, making friends and, and being at peace with yourself and with your feelings. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I, I would say that uh, it's just a lot of love for Patrick Stewart right now. So uh, I've already mentioned Jean-Luc Picard, and I think he is a fantastic example of um, a wonderful masculine character who who completely pushes all these ideas of ta- toxic masculinity out of the water. But uh, I'll I'll also give some praise for Charles Xavier of X-Men. Um <laughs> Uh, particularly, yeah, played by Patrick Stewart. Um, again, I think he's, it's, it's a wonderful character and he's powerful and intelligent and just, and caring and strong and, and yeah, he's fantastic. And also, you know, there's another example of, you know, in the new X-Men sort of films, the, um, uh, X-Men First Class and Days of Future Past. Charles cries in both of them. So there's, there's that inversion as well. But yeah, pretty much anything Patrick Stewart. I think that's absolutely brilliant. So I feel like we've been through every iteration of mankind that is possible. We've talked about male characters that are so emotionally and physically amped up that they actually undermine the ideals they purport to represent. We've talked about how the elements of toxic masculinity are present in our society, even from birth. But the abundance of children's films that address these issues gives us hope that change is on the way. In addition, both adult films and books these days are redefining the role of the male protagonist in a more positive way. And anything that stars Patrick Stewart is going to get our vote. This is Breaking the Glass Slipper. Thank you for listening and please join us again next time.